please welcome the president of the American Physical Therapy Association, Dr. Scott Ward. Thank you, and welcome to the 39th Mary McMillan Lecture. Before introducing this year's lecturer, I would like to take a few moments to remember Mary McMillan herself and share with you a bit of her legacy. Molly, as her friends knew her, was an educator, author, and leader in the field of physical therapy. After completing a bachelor's degree at the College of Physical Culture in Liverpool, Molly worked with children under the tutelage of Sir Robert Jones. In 1918, Molly was assigned to Walter Reed General Hospital as head reconstruction aide and helped to found the U.S. Army's first organized physical therapy department. Later that year, she was granted a leave of absence from the Army to participate in the Reed College Emergency Training Program for Reconstruction Aids. Graduates of this and other emergency programs helped to handle the peak load of patients in 1919, immediately following World War I. During this time, Molly prepared the manuscript for her book, Massage and Therapeutic Exercises, the first book by a physical therapist published in the United States. On January 15, 1921, an association of physical therapists was established during an organizational meeting held at Keene's Chop House in New York City. Mary McMillan was elected the first president of the American Women's Physical Therapeutic Association. The Mary McMillan Lecture Award was established to acknowledge and honor a member of the association who has made distinguished contributions to the profession and to provide the recipient an opportunity to share his or her achievements and ideas through a lecture presented at our annual conference. At this time, I have the honor of asking all previous Mary McMillan lecturers present with us today to please stand and be recognized as your name is announced. I will announce your name and the year of your lectureship, and I would ask the audience to please hold your applause until the introductions are complete. First, Dr. Geneva Johnson, 1985. Mr. Charles Magistro, 1987. Mr. Robert Bartlett, 1991. Dr. Shirley Sarman, 1998. Dr. Stephen Wolf, 2002. Dr. Pamela Duncan, 2003. Dr. Marilyn Moffat, 2004. Dr. Rebecca Craik, 2005. And Dr. Stanley Paris, 2006. Thank you very much. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Tony DeLito as the 39th Mary McMillan Lecturer. Dr. DeLito is well known for his passion and for his desire to make a difference within the physical therapy profession. He is well known as a clinician, an educator, an administrator, a researcher, and a person who looks for continuous opportunities to change and create discussion about the needs of the profession. 
He fuels the initiative of aspiring faculty and engages his colleagues to think, and therefore has spent his career building a network of thinkers to assist moving the profession forward along with him. Currently, he serves as professor and chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. He is also director of research at the Comprehensive Spine Center and vice president for education and research at CRS UPMC. Dr. Toledo has served at both the component and national levels of the association for more than 30 years, holding various leadership positions within the New York, Missouri, Illinois, and Pennsylvania chapters, and within the research, clinical electrophysiology and wound management, and orthopedics sections of the APTA. Dr. Toledo has served as a reviewer for a number of agencies and has published nearly 70 articles in refereed journals and 15 in non-refereed journals. In addition, he is a reviewer and a member of the Physical Therapy Editorial Board and is chair of its steering committee. Dr. Delito has served on numerous APTA committees and task forces within the areas of research, practice, and education, and currently serves on the doctoral research awards and scientific review committees for the Foundation of Physical Therapy. Dr. Delito has represented APTA on practice guideline initiatives from federal and professional societies. He has been a member of the ad hoc level at the ad hoc level of the study section of NIH and is a permanent member of the Geriatrics and Rehabilitation Medicine Study Section. He is integral, integrally, <laughs> he is very involved on an integral <laughs> level in establishing and moving forward a national agenda on rehabilitation research, having received himself more than $1.2 million in funding as a principal investigator from the National Institute for Arthritis, Musculoskeletal, and Skin Diseases. Dr. Delito has also has been active in funding grants as an with funded grants as an investigator for the National Institute of Complementary and Alternative Medicine and with the National Institute on Aging, the Claude Pepper Center for Older American Independent Study. For his many outstanding accomplishments and contributions to the physical therapy profession, Dr. Delito has been honored by the APTA Orthopedics section on five occasions with the Stephen J. Rose Award. And from APTA, he has been honored with the Jules M. Rothstein Golden Pen Award for Scientific Writing, the Marion Williams Award for Research in Physical Therapy, the Lucy Blair Service Award, the John H. P. Maley Award for Innovation in Clinical Practice, and was elected a Catherine Worthingham Fellow in 2000. Please join me in honoring Dr. Tony Delito. Well, now we get to hear the answer to the question I've heard all week. Am I ready? <laughs> After being asked to deliver this most prestigious lectureship, 
One of the first things I did was look at the list of previous Mary McMillan lecturers. Looking at the cast that preceded me, I was nothing short of awestruck. I graduated from my entry-level professional physical therapy training in 1979 and attended my first annual conference in 1980. I vividly remember attending Florence Kendall's Mary McMillan address. I don't remember much else from that conference. I haven't missed many Macmillan lectures since then. In fact, I can count on one hand those I've missed. My fondest memories of these lectures involve the highly spirited debate about some of the more pressing issues of our time. Suffice to say that you did not always agree about some issues. And why would I be surprised that this group didn't agree on some issues? On one issue, however, all previous lectures were in agreement. The word honor came up in virtually every lecturer's first or second lines. So like my predecessors, I cannot begin to tell you how honored I am to be the 39th Mary McMillan lecturer and to be included in the list of previous lecturers, many of whom I consider mentors and most of all, friends. To all of the previous McMillan lecturers present, I would like to, you all to know that I have the utmost respect for you and I am humbled to have my name included with, your, with yours in the same breath. <clears throat> Allow me a few words about my title. We are what we do. If you remember the movie Forrest Gump, you surely remember Forrest's mother, played wonderfully by Sally Field, when she would repeatedly remind the slow-witted Forrest, stupid is as stupid does. My first impression, was that she was rather cold-hearted at times, and at times almost mean. But the beauty of her approach was that she was preparing a child for a world where she knew he was going to face challenges that in many ways would appear to be insurmountable. Most of all, she was instilling in this child that, this was, that it was what he did with his life as opposed to his potential that was of paramount importance to his, his success. Now I'm probably the only person in the entire world that would turn a statement from the movie Forrest Gump into an evidence-based practice lesson. <laughs> For those of us in the health field, Sally Field's words clearly delineate the difference between competence and performance and remind us that actual performance is the key to success in anything. I have chosen my title, We Are What We Do, to make the case that as opposed to potential, it is performance or what we do that will ultimately determine our, profession, our profession's future success. We Are What We Do was the best I could come up with for a title, and besides, I could not title my lecture, Stupid Is As Stupid Does. <laughs> I welcome the recent talk in the APTA Strategic Thinking and Planning Initiative about how it is critical that our field demonstrate value value to the healthcare system as well as to the public in general. How will we demonstrate our value in the most convincing manner? One approach that comes to mind almost immediately is public relations, where I see an overall strategy of telling everyone that our profession's knowledge base and skill match up very well with many of the ills of the American public, including diabetes, cardiac problem, obesity, etc. Trying to get our audience to focus on our potential role in healthcare, in healthcare may be a successful strategy in some instances, 
and I'm certainly not up here to oppose public relations efforts. However, I am proposing that our message is much more convincing to our potential audience if we can also demonstrate that with adequate access to patients, we are not only effective, but we are cost effective. This performance-based approach requires data to support our claim of adding value. In order for us to improve our performance, we first need to have some idea about how we are performing. My goal in the short time I have up here is to begin to characterize ways to assess our performance as a profession. I was told that in some way I'm supposed to relate my experience to the relate this talk to my experience in the field of physical therapy. I've always felt uncomfortable talking about myself, but I love to talk about the people that have had a, that have been very influential in my life. One of my most favorable memories as a physical therapist dates back to my fledgling years as a physical therapist and, the newly, and I was a newly minted physical therapist and working with my mentor, Stephen J. Rose. Shortly after graduating from my entry-level training, Steve asked me to join him in St. Louis and I began a career and remained there for 11 years. I like to say I did most of my professional growing up in St. Louis. It was there that I not only learned about the tripartite mission of academia, research, practice, and education, but I got to actually see it role modeled on an everyday basis in the first half of my career and have strived to continue to emphasize each element of this model in the latter half of my career at the University of Pittsburgh. I would like to think that I remain in contact and engaged with each of these areas throughout my career. Going back to my theme, namely performance assessment, I would like to spend a little time talking about performance in research, practice, and education. A sort of, how are we doing in research, practice, and education, according to me. In assessing research, much depends on how we characterize our performance. One of the most compelling benchmarks in research is performance related to National Institute of Health funding. If National Institute of Health funding is our profession's benchmark, we certainly have much about which to brag. Recent estimates by American Physical Therapy Association staff state that physical therapists account for 25% of the funding for what the NIH characterizes as rehabilitation research. Though the exact percentage is elusive, suffice to say that this estimate is a conservative one and probably an underestimate. From a performance-based perspective, our stature at the NIH is corroborated by other actions taken at the NIH level, including inclusion of physical therapists at study sections, council and advisory board levels. Most important from the standpoint of research performance, we have witnessed a spectacular model of investment and return on investment through the Foundation for Physical Therapy. We can trace most of our NIH-funded investigators back to the Foundation for Physical Therapy and Foundation for Physical Therapy support, including myself, through doctoral and research grant support. An extremely effective measure of performance is the amount of money invested by our foundation into new investigators and comparing that with the eventual NIH level of money that was obtained by these investigators. Our foundation president tells me that the latest figures in this area are $15 million for the investment and $115 million on the return to, of the investment.
It is entirely appropriate to take a moment and express our profession's gratitude to those responsible for forming the Foundation for Physical Therapy as well as those who have maintained it, sometimes through some very rough waters. Yes, there's much to brag about when it comes to research if our performance standard is the amount of NIH money our researchers are able to generate. Certainly, in the world of academia, NIH grants become the key, mark, the key benchmark and ultimate endorsement of anyone's research portfolio. But is NIH procurement our profession's gold standard of research performance? I would think that some in this audience, especially clinicians, would like to expand our gold standard to include something about exactly how this newfound research is impacting the day-to-day -day practice of physical therapy. You would think that our research accomplishments, most of which have occurred in the last 10 to 15 years, would have radically transformed areas of physical therapy practice. Put simply, is our newly minted research transformed practice in any area in any significant way? I'm going to be a little argumentative here. Quite candidly, I'm going to say no, at least not to a great extent. When we look at clinical performance, we are still not far removed from an observation made by Steve Rose back in the 1980s. Our practice needs more research, and our research needs more practice. Like many other health fields, there is a great disparity between what we know from research findings and what we do in everyday clinical practice. Like many other health fields, our inability to implement research findings into practice would appear to place the blame on practice with statements that I commonly hear from the research community that go something like, the practitioners just don't follow the evidence. There is an equal amount of blame targeting the researcher, and it goes something like, much of the research being produced is just not applicable to my practice. Unfortunately, there is merit to both statements when you look at this from a performance standpoint. When a patient seeks care in our healthcare system, the best evidence tells us that 50% of the time they will receive care consistent with best evidence. That's right, 50% of the time they'll receive care consistent, which means 50% of the time they'll receive care inconsistent. Physical therapy is no different. Whether we look at attitudes toward best practice or actual performance, we can see plenty of room for improvement when it comes to our performance in the clinic matching what we know as best practice standards. I will take my own area, area of interest, low back pain. I bet most of you are surprised it took me this long to get to low back pain. And I will use two sources of data that justify my claim that we do underutilize procedures that have been shown to be beneficial and overutilize interventions that have proven little benefit. For example, the overwhelming positive attitude towards the use of physical agents, coupled with actual clinical performance data, demonstrate a clear overutilization of these procedures. Coupled with profound underutilization of known effective interventions, such as thrust, thrust manipulation procedures, our clinical performance in this area may cause an unbiased outside observer to wonder. Exactly what evidence will we use to make the claim that a physical therapist should be a pr the practitioner of choice for this highly prevalent and very costly condition? To add insult to injury, much of the evidence support, supporting the use of thrust manipulation for low back pain 
has been produced by physical therapists. How do we justify our claim to adding value when our audience has access to data that clearly demonstrates that we commonly do not practice in ways consistent with evidence? Certainly, there is room for improvement in our clinical performance data. I believe that if we are, able to, ma if we are to make the claim to be evidence-based practitioners, then adhering to standards, adhering to best practice standards should not, should not be a nice to do but it should be a necessary to do. To the practitioners in this room who have repeatedly stated that much of what researchers produce has little relevance to their practice, let me state unequivocally that I believe, you, I believe very strongly that you have a case. Allow me to digress and once more talk about my past. I spent my first four years practicing full-time, teaching a few courses, and earning a post-professional master's degree. I reached a crossroads in my life where I had to make a decision to stay in academia or go into private practice. In order to stay in academia, it was made very clear to me that I needed to earn a PhD. My initial interest was in neuroscience, namely doing single unit recording in the basal ganglia of behaving monkeys before and after the monkeys were, were made Parkinsonian. I began the process of applying to doctoral programs in neuroscience, which at the time would have been a significant commitment of time and money. But more than the time and money, I was looking downstream and realizing that the path was leading me further and further away from the practice of physical therapy. Now I know that many out there would argue that neuroscience is certainly a part of physical therapy. Let me make myself perfectly clear. However, I did not want to become a neuroscientist who happened to be a physical therapist. I believe this path and this dilemma represented many of my generation who, who, who pursued doctoral research degrees in basic areas and who then turned to the Foundation for Physical Therapy for support. As I stated earlier, the Foundation for Physical Therapy funded a great deal of fledgling researchers and a substantial number of these researchers went in to become went on to become independent investigators with funding from the NIH. While we are quick to applaud these accomplishments, I can certainly see how people in the trenches of clinical care cannot appreciate the connection between basic or bench research and the problems faced by, everyday, by clinicians on an everyday basis. I myself have a hard time and must admit that some of the research that has been done by physical therapists is at such a basic level and so far removed from practice that it would take a giant leap of faith to make the, con the connection. It is at this point in time that it is very tempting for me to make some profound statement, like, our research and practice communities need to build bridges. Or how about this one? There is a need for a better understanding between the, between the researcher and practitioner, and it was never more crucial than now. By the way, variations of this statement can be found all the way back to the second Mary McMillan lecture, as Catherine Worthingham strived to bring our collect to our collective consciousness the criteria that was necessary to be met before we considered ourselves a profession. Instead, my statement is, our profession needs to develop strategies designed to stop digging trenches between our practice and research communities. The fact of the matter is, 
There is plenty of blame to go around with regard to the disparity between what we know and what we do. In the words of Dustin Hoffman, however, blame is for God and small children. As researchers and practitioners, we can continue to point our fingers at each other in blame, and believe, and I believe me, and believe me, we have. The fact of the matter is that when it is all said and done, we will still be left with the same problems. Perhaps we need to look no further than what is happening with the rest of healthcare and the well-documented problems and the overall ill health of our healthcare industry in spite of the enormous amount of money being spent on research, especially by the National Institute of Health. Disparities inequality, and inequalities continue to exist despite their long-standing recognition, outcomes vary, and treatments are not provided equally. Healthcare is an industry that has been characterized as a high-volume, low-margin business that is riddled with inefficiencies, outrageous costs, and outmoded technology. The result, in the United States, healthcare accounts for a record 16% of the nation's gross domestic product. Medical spending continues to skyrocket, and this figure is expected to reach 20% in the next five years. We have a healthcare system that is increasingly getting worse in spite of an enormous amount of money being spent at the NIH. Presumably, this money is being spent for cutting-edge therapies and breakthroughs with regards to the management of conditions that negatively affect Americans. But based on numerous performance measures, the benchmarks associated with our healthcare system do not measure up. It's no secret that in the United States lags behind European countries in infant mortality, five-year survival weight for cervical cancer, breast cancer, and so on. In very short order, we will be told by one party that we have the best healthcare system in the world. But the data simply does not support such a statement. And in fact, the United States is currently ranked 37th by the World Health Organization's ranking of world health systems. Can we do better? Knowing how badly our healthcare system performs and how it does not appear that there is universal agreement that we are getting a bang for our buck, it would be very easy for us as physical therapists and part of this system to sit back and be satisfied with the status quo. That is, we can continue to pat ourselves on the back about our NIH procurement prowess. We can dismiss our inability to translate our findings to practice by simply stating, well, no other health profession seems to be doing it either. Alternatively, we can set our sights a little higher. How about much higher? Guess which direction I'm going to propose we go? <laughs> the NIH has certainly recognized the disparity between what we know and what we do and responded with what are now the Clinical Translational Science Awards. The Clinical and Translational Science Award program has defined three categories of translational research. Type one translational research is often described as moving, and the key word here is moving, bench or basic science discoveries into preclinical trials. Type two translational research is best known as moving controlled observational study findings or even phase three clinical trials into larger groups of patients and testing these interventions in observational studies or survey research. Type three translational research is recognized as the dissemination and implementation of research 
where known interventions and practices can be used in an attempt to impact improvement through impact through improved health policy. While the details of translational research are not critical to this discussion, the best tenet of catalyzing the application of new knowledge and techniques to clinical practice at the front lines of patient care should ring a bell with both our research and our practice communities. I would emphasize that initiatives in translational research can arise from any of the three types of research, type one, type two, or type three. But the key point is this, to realize the total impact of any research initiative, the potential of research areas in all three types needs to be fully explored as it, and, and, and in our, as, in our, and, and as it relates to us, to the profession of physical therapy, it needs to be explored how it relates to practice. If a researcher is interested in type one research, there's nothing wrong with being interested in basic research, but the question of the potential impact on the field of physical therapy can be explored by fully discussing how this work can be translated to type two and type three research. These discussions occur in the planning stages prior to the initiation of the research. I'm sure that everyone recognizes, out there recognizes the area of type three research or health policy and, it all, and the fact that it also includes the magic word for practice, reimbursement. To best take advantage of this initiative, I believe that our profession needs to expand our research funding initiatives to include a prioritization of research areas. We should base our prioritization, at least in part, with models consistent with NIH initiatives such as the Clinical Translational Service Award, Science Award initiatives, especially when we consider our success at the NIH level and the fact that in spite of budgetary cuts, the NIH remains a deep pocket. This very pragmatic approach will not, will not only have the potential for a deep-pocketed funding partner, but I see another more compelling reason to consider this approach. If we carry it out properly, we will eliminate the need to bridge the gap between practice and research, because practice and research will be working together in the formulation of the research priorities. In other words, there is no need to build a bridge if you do not dig the trench. I would like to focus on type three research, translational research, and policy issues in particular, especially those related to reimbursement for our services. There is not a single person in this audience that has not been directly affected by the decrease in reimbursement for our services. We have always acknowledged that we are low on the food chain when it comes to healthcare expenditures. We have seen we have all seen the pyramid charts that illustrate the disproportionate amount of expenditures that hospitals and physicians receive, up to 80% of the healthcare dollar. While physical therapy is listed with all the other quote unquote ancillary services for a combined total of less than 5% of expenditures. To make matters worse, we have seen this very small proportion of the healthcare dollar shrink further over the past few years in what we all know as reimbursement rate declines. Most practices have continued to come to grips with decreased collections, but as a profession, we are now beginning to recognize the profound rippling effect of decreased reimbursement rates. 
In the past 10 years, salaries for physical therapists have, for the most part, stagnated. When compared to the in increasing price of physical therapy education, the disparity between the cost for education and the entry-level salary has increased to a point where it is most definitely infringed on the applicant pool. When you couple this with the attractiveness of programs where students need to make similar academic investment but receive a much higher entry-level salary, such as PharmD programs, along with those programs that require much less academic investment and greater salary, such as physician assistant programs, it does not bode well for the health of our applicant pool. The strong applicant pool has been the lifeblood to our educational institutions. For years, we have taken for granted the popularity of our profession, which has translated to healthy applicant pools throughout the 1990s. And we now see the applicant pool decline of late. I believe strongly it is related to the cost of education and stagnant salaries. I cannot believe that we will not see continued competition for high quality applicants as we make education more and more expensive while entry-level salaries remain stagnant. Considering the latter, what is the cause of stagnant entry-level salaries? Though our profession has never been dominated by independent practitioners, the delivery of physical therapy services has always been profitable to someone. Even when the profit was distributed to hospitals or through rehabilitation companies or private practitioner entrepreneurs, there still remained enough resources to adequately respond to the increased salaries as the market dictated. Now I am told by those in whom I trust that dwindling reimbursement rates do not allow for such modifications. There are not many solutions to the problems if we cannot solve dwindling reimbursement rates and increasing tuition debt loads. Although I have listened to success stories in alternative practice about alternative practice environments, I am not sure we are ready as a profession to convert our practice to cash-only businesses. I am not ready to, and I am not ready to give up on strategies to address reimbursement rates and I'm certainly not ready to stop exploring more efficient ways to educate our entry-level professional physical therapists. It is in these areas I would like to briefly address my remaining comments and focus on opportunities. I would like to go back to the reimbursement food chain. While I agree that our profession is commonly an afterthought when it comes to calculating reimbursement rates, I wonder if we should be reconsidering our strategies. In the past, we have been reactionary to reimbursement cuts that have been more or less arbitrarily imposed on our profession. When I consider the $1,500 Medicare cap, I ask the question, where did the $1,500 arise? More recently, in the United States, one of our largest private insurers has decreed that a physical therapy visit is worth $40. If these numbers are not arbitrary, I'm sure they're not based on the potential need for our care in the Medicare case or the cost associated with providing a physical therapy service. In truth, these arbitrary decisions are not based on any data. They are simply put in place without any sound rationale. Our response is not only reactionary, but we typically take our argument to the person at the other end of the food chain who is only interested in how much less they can offer for our services. Even when we made the argument of a positive impact and cost effectiveness, with the benefit of data, I doubt the demand for re our demand for greater reimbursement would be received favorably. 
we are taking our case to the level of the food chain that has a boundary. No matter how artificial, we are unlikely to see a substantive move that can pass that boundary and into the direction of increased reimbursement. I would propose two important steps to take in order to have a better chance at improving our ability to seek a more fair payment for our services. First, we need to identify those areas where we have substantive proof that we can have a positive impact on the cost effectiveness of care. By substantive proof, we should be prepared to document the cost savings of using physical therapists as providers of services in certain areas. The bigger the cost savings coupled with effectiveness to the patient, the better case we can make for our services. Second, we need to take our argument to the right level of the food chain. Our credibility in this endeavor is greatly enhanced with the benefit of data. To take on the first task, I would like you to imagine me throwing a basket full of $100 bills on the floor and a basket full of $1 bills on the floor. And if I gave you 30 seconds to pick up as much money as you could, which bill would you target? Now, I would like, you to, I would like us to consider physical therapy's impact to the healthcare system in certain areas of care. Impact is defined as cost effectiveness. We should compare our cost to our overall effectiveness. Include in the cost, not only the cost of physical therapy services, but also the cost savings that using physical therapy services might entail. What are the, what are the areas of care that correspond to the $100 bills for physical therapy? For example, consider managing low back pain. There was a recent publication in the Wall Street Journal that documented the cost savings of early, early utilization of physical therapy in the management of low back pain. Early physical therapy utilization was compared to previ a previously used method where the initial contact was with physicians. In the latter cases, patients waited long periods of time for physicians appo physician appointments, unnecessary ancillary tests were ordered, including expensive imaging, and prescription drugs were administered. The average cost of care with a physician-driven approach was over $2,000. When compared to the approach where physical therapists were used initially, the cost savings per episode of care was about 50%, or about $1,000 per case. Shortly after this was published, physical therapists were ecstatic with such data and the fact that it was published in such a reputable news source such as the Wall Street Journal. Certainly. Rational people will see our positive impact and consider reimbursing us appropriately for the cost savings that can be directly attributable to our intervention. As physical therapists, we should be able to see this scenario based in Washington. We should be able to see that this scenario based in Washington is only scratching the surface of potential cost effectiveness when you consider, one, the literature that tells us the that the physical therapists were probably delivering care consistent with evidence about 50% of the time. Again, room for improvement. And the fact that the study was conducted in a state that does not allow physical therapists to use, to use thrust manipulation, an intervention that we know is effective in a large proportion of patients studied. Next, let's consider to whom we take this argument now that we have the data. Shall we take the argument to the insurer? How can we be certain that an insurer will not respond by simply taking the cost savings as part of their profit? After all, Aetna, the insurer in this case, is a for-profit company. 
with a responsibility to its shareholders. Being in the House this week, many of us had to agree with our colleagues from New York that we are skeptical of having a trusted partner in many of our third-party payers. Now, consider another payer of healthcare costs, namely the employer. I would argue that the employer is the most important payer of healthcare services and the payer that is most interested in cost effectiveness. This is the constituent who is really footing the bill for the exorbitant costs of, manage, of managing low back pain, whether it be in their workers' compensation business or with their commercially insured employees and families. I have no doubt that providing information about our cost effectiveness to this particular consumer would not only be favorably, favorably received, but would more likely lead to demands for better reimbursement for our services. In fact, the take-home message that is missed in the Wall Street Journal publication is the fact that the employers, Starbucks and Boeing, demanded that the insurer, Aetna, provide greater reimbursement to the provider of health care, and this was done in the form of higher reimbursement for physical therapy services. Improving reimbursement or payment for services will have a profound effect for our profession across the board, and I hope it trickles down to better salaries for our entry-level practitioners. Better salaries are only one half of the equation to enhance our applicant pool, though. We must discuss strategies to at least contain and hopefully decrease the cost of education. We must remember that with our move to post-baccalaureate, the cost of physical therapy education has increased substantively. Coupled with tuition hikes that I would describe as unconscionable, especially since my son just finished four years of college, the debt load for our students has become a deterrent to prospective applicants, especially when coupled with stagnant salaries. The situation begs for strategies to make the education of our next generation of physical therapists more affordable. In terms of making education cheaper, my comments will be focused once more on pragmatics and what I like to call low-hanging fruit with regard to entry-level professional physical therapy education. I believe it is past time for this profession to begin, to begin looking at the manner in which we go about the clinical education component of our entry-level professional education. I have been on record on numerous occasions stating that the most vulnerable component in our educational, our educational system is the clinical education of our students. In short, it is an eyesore. The programmatic variability alone, where terminal internships range from 17 to 52 weeks, is indefensible in a profession that calls itself doctoring. The lack of control of what happens in the clinical environment and the economic vulnerability of a system that relies totally on volunteerism should be the subject of sleepless nights amongst all of my compatriots who are chairs of programs. Present Medicare reimbursement regulations have placed a barrier between our students and hands-on exposure to older individuals in outpatient settings. And I am told that it is highly likely that this will carry over to inpatient settings as well. Though we can discuss ways around these regulations, suffice to say that none of the strategies will likely satisfy both the desired level of exposure for our students and the lack of cost effectiveness overall from the clinical environment's perspective. Some say we should lobby CMS in an effort to change regulations and allow for students to bill under, under supervision, under the supervision of a licensed therapist. 
I must tell you, if I remove my physical therapist hat, I would first want to know why we should be paying the going rate for physical therapy for services provided by a person who has not yet met minimal standards as documented by licensure. I would hope government officials would be asking for a data-based argument that supports this request, and we know there is no such data. I will put my academic chair's hat on and address my compatriots and ask, how long will we continue to bury our heads in the sand and ignore this white elephant in the room? Clinical education has now been singled out in major initiatives, including the education agenda and the strategic planning and thinking process. As a profession, we are increasingly recognizing that we have a problem, which is good news in that our lack of acknowledgement in the past was our major impediment to solving this issue. Even if you believe that in your particular program you do not have a problem, at least look at the profession as a whole and acknowledge that the majority believe the problem exists and is severe enough to warrant action. If you need prodding, imagine for a moment the very real possibility that reimbursement regulations such as those imposed by Medicare will cascade to other payers and result in observation-only experiences for your students. To move forward at an expedited pace, we must first acknowledge the problem and identify the barriers. I would suggest that to complete our transition to a doctoring profession, I would urge us to at least consider post-professional entry-level residencies as a clinical education model. I would propose that we graduate our students prior to the terminal internship, let them sit for licensure, and then place them in long-term entry-level residencies. It is a model that has worked for other professions. It does not require licensure law changes. It solves the growing problem of Medicare regulations it re and reduces the cost of education by eliminating tuition the year the students are out on the residency. Imagine. You solve some real issues in clinical education while, at the same time, you decrease the cost of education as a whole. Though some may look at the establishment of residencies as a barrier, it is not an insurmountable barrier when considering the fact that such models are already, are, are already in place for specialty residencies, and many clinical directors believe such arrangements can indeed be formulated and be cost-effective. Finally, a bold move such as this will allow our profession to move forward in a, with a more standardized approach to clinical education and, if such residencies go through a credentialing process, a much more credible approach. The effort will be worth it. Among the gifts I have received, one of my favorites sits on my desk. It's a rock, and it has a quote on the rock, and the quote, and the, it was given to me by, the, by Editor Emeritus of Physical Therapy, the late Jules M. Rothstein. He gave it to me shortly after I became chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh. On this rock is a quote from Albert Einstein, in difficult times lie opportunity. I do not think that for one minute Jules was trying to scare me away from the job of being chair. 
nor was he warning me to watch for the difficult times that almost assuredly awaited me as I, was as I took on, on the chair's responsibilities. I prefer to believe that he was reminding me to look for the opportunity that oftentimes lurks somewhere behind challenges and to appropriately and decisively react to these opportunities. By appropriately, I had to thoughtfully and without bias consider the situation, consider the situation preferably, for, preferably with, and you, you'll remember this from Jules, with the benefit of data as opposed to emotions. Once the situation was accurately surmised, well, decisiveness was never a problem for me. So where are our opportunities? Thomas Edison once said, opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overhauls and it looks like work. <laughs> I would like to close my, by reminding ourselves that collectively, we are the stewards of our profession. Our collective stewardship of this profession will be documented not by our words lauding our potential, but rather by our accomplishments. Our accomplishments and research need to continue to grow and become translatable to, everyday to the everyday practitioner by communicating with the practice community and articulating exactly how your work will eventually be relevant to the practice of physical therapy. Our accomplishments in practice will relate to our ability to implement relevant research findings to our everyday practice and to inform the research community about potential areas of practice that are in dire need of investigatory activity. If we address anything in our collective careers regarding education, it must solve the clinical education problem as it exists now. I would love for a Mary McMillan a future Mary McMillan lecturer not to be able to point toward the need for bridges between education, research, and practice. We must all remember that the need for a bridge is a sign of a failure in our planning process. Education, research, and practice are not, by definition, separate entities that can, be, that can exist on their own without regard for one another. The need for a bridge is only necessary because of our own man-made trenches that we encourage by not adequately dialoguing with one another in the planning stages. Finally, please allow me to acknowledge <laughs> some individuals <clears throat> without whom I could not imagine being up here. First, to my wonderful colleagues in the profession who have worked with me throughout my career and who are too numerable to mention without fear of leaving someone out. I thank you. I would like to particularly pick out one colleague, though, someone who lost a bet. Bill Boysenow, you should never bet against the New York Giants in Green Bay because somebody may make you wear a cheese head to a Mary McMillan lecture. To my phenomenal, phenomenal faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, it has been my honor to call myself your chair. You have never shirked from any challenge, and it is your collective accomplishments that have in large part made me famous enough to achieve the honor of standing at this podium.
to our partners at Pitt, the clinical community, who have embraced our ideas of partnership in education, research, and practice, and have made the model work. I, can, I cannot express our gratitude, and I would especially point to Paul Rocker, whom all of you know as a, as a board of director, but in case you don't know it, Paul has a day job. And he's the CEO of the Centers for Rehab Services and an adjunct faculty member at Pitt. Paul and his predecessor, Richard Bowling, have been partnering with us on our research and educational efforts since 1996. And again, we could not have accomplished what we have without their willingness to meet us halfway in our educational and research endeavors. Please allow me a little leeway as I acknowledge my family. First off, I'm married into a physical therapy family. <laughs> Not only is my wife a physical therapist, her father, her uncle, and her brother are physical therapists. <laughs> I'm sure many from New York, from the New York chapter will recognize my father-in-law, Sam Kaiser. He's doing well. Here, you can see my mother's, our, my, our Mother's Day gift of 23 years ago, my son Daniel, and my birthday gift of earlier this year, my grandson Ethan, along with my other grandchild, Zoe. And finally, how can I forget my lovely wife, Rana? And I would also like to acknowledge one more person, my sister, Linda, who's in the audience today. And <clears throat> who I describe as my, my true living hero. Words cannot express my gratitude, my love, and I could not have done this without all of your support. Again, I thank everyone for this wonderful honor. Thank you, Tony, for doing just what we would expect from you, inspiring and challenging us. On behalf of the American Physical Therapy Association, I wish to present you with the Mary McMillan Lecture Medallion and a certificate in commemoration of this wonderful lecture that you've just presented to us. My colleagues and friends, this concludes the 39th Mary Mill McMillan Lecture of the APTA. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the conference. <laughs>